Chapter 7 of Our Master Thoughts for Salvationists About Their Lord This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Hirsch Our Master Thoughts for Salvationists About Their Lord by Bramwell Booth Chapter 7 windows in calvary and they crucified him and sitting down they watched him there matthew 27 verses 35 and 36 passing words spoken in times of deep emotion often reveal human character more vividly than a lifetime of talk under ordinary circumstances Conduct, which at other times is of the most trifling significance, reveals in the hour of fiery trial the very inwards of the soul, even making manifest that which has been hidden perhaps for a generation. Thus while watching a man with the opportunity and the temptation to deceive or oppress those who are in his power, you may see into the very thoughts of his heart you may learn what he really is. Or you may measure the depths of a mother's love in observing her when after violating every principle she has valued and lived for, her prodigal boy comes to ask her to take him in once more. In the same way, words spoken by the dying are often like windows suddenly uncovered through which one may catch a glimpse of the ruling passion of life, in the light of which their life-witness and life-labor alike look different. It is this fact which often gives the dying hour of the meanest importance as well as solemnity. The veriest trifler that ever trifled through this veil of tears has, in that last solemn hour, something to teach of the secrets of mortality. And this revelation of the real facts of human experience is of the highest value to the world. It is one of God's witnesses to truth, that truth will out. Sooner or later, selfishness and sin will appear in their naked deformity to horrify those who behold them. And in the end, justice and truth and love are certain to be made manifest in their natural beauty, to convince and to charm and to attract their beholders. It is not only one of the uses of trial to bring this about, but it is one of the means by which God converts to his own high purposes the miseries and sorrows the devil has brought in. The one burns the martyrs, the other brings out of that cruel and frightful wrong the glorious testimony which is the very seed of his church. The one casts us into fiery dispensations of suffering and loss. The other takes these moments of human anguish and desolation and makes of them open windows, through which a doubting or scoffing world may see what love can do. Thus he makes us to triumph in the midst of our foes, while working in us a likeness to himself, the all-patient 
and all-perfect God. Nor is it the good and true alone who are thus made object lessons to others, and to themselves, by these ordeals of pain. By them many a bad man also is forced to appear bad to himself. Many a hypocrite, anxious about the opinions and the traditions of men, is at last stripped of his lies to see himself the wretched fraud he really is. Many a heart backslider, whose religion has long ceased to be anything but a memory, awakes to the shame of it and to the danger, and often, thank God, awakes in time. Now, the words of the dying Christ on his cross are, in the same way, a true and wonderful revelation of his character and his spirit. As it is only by the light of the sun that we see the sun, so it is by Jesus that Jesus is best revealed. Never one spake like he spake, and yet, in this respect, so real was his humanity. He spake like us all. He spake out what was in him. The truth must, above all and before all, make manifest what is true of himself. To whom, then, did our Lord speak on the tree? And what spake he? What special thoughts and beauties of his soul do his words reveal? Jesus, so far as his words have been recorded for us, spoke from the cross to Mary, his mother, to one of the thieves who was crucified with him, to God, his Father, and to himself. 1. His Words to Mary When Jesus, therefore, saw his mother, and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. The position of Mary in those last hours was peculiarly grievous. She had lived to see the breaking down of every hope that a mother's heart could cherish for her son. Standing there amidst that mob of relentless enemies, and watching Jesus, forsaken by God and man in his mortal agony, her present sorrow, great as it was, was crowned by the memory of the holy and happy anticipations of his birth, and the maiden exultations of her soul when the angels foretold that her son should be the savior of his people and their king. How cruelly different the reality had turned out! How far, how very far away would seem to her the quiet days of Nazareth! the rapture of her son's first innocent embraces, and the evening communions with him as he grew in years. What tender memories the sight of those dear bleeding feet, those outstretched wounded hands, would recall to that mother's heart. Yes, Marion Calvary is to me a word picture of desolate, withering, and helpless grief of pain increased by love, and of love intensified by pain. 
and Jesus, in his great agony, the man of sorrows, come at last to the winepress that his heart might be broken in treading it alone, come to the hour of his travail, come to the supreme agony of the sin-offering, face to face with the wrath of the judge, blackness and tempest and anguish blotting out for the moment even the face of the Father. Forsaken at last, forsaken, Jesus, in this depth of midnight darkness, sees her standing by the cross. Bless him, O ye that weep and mourn in this vale of tears. Bless him forever. His eyes are eyes for the sorrowful. He sees them. He has tears to shed with them. He is touched with the same feelings and moved by the same griefs. He sees Mary and speaks to her, and in a word gives her to John, and John to her for mutual care and love. It was as though he said, Mother, you bear me. You watched and suffered for me. And in this redeeming agony of my love, I remember your anguish, and I take you forever under my care, and I name you mine. Surely there never was sorrow like unto his sorrow, and yet in its darkest crisis he has eyes and heart for this one other's sorrow. Far from him, as the east from the west, is any of that selfish thought and selfish seclusion which grief and pain so often work in the unsanctified heart, I and in the best of us. What a lesson of practical love it is! What a message, especially to those who are called to suffer with him for the souls of men, comes streaming from those words spoken to Mary. The burden of the people's needs, the care of the church, the awful responsibility of ministering to souls, these things, sacred as they may be, cannot excuse us in neglecting the hungry hearts of our own flesh and blood, or in forgetting the claims of those of our own household. Dear friend and comrade, in your sorrow, in your sore trial of faith, in your Calvary, take to your heart this revelation of the heart of the Son of Man, and be careful of the solitary and heart-bleeding ones near you, no matter how humble and how unworthy they may seem. 2. His words to the thief. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. The crucifixion of the two robbers with Jesus was a sort of topstone of the obloquy and disgrace contrived by his murderers, with the double object of further humiliating him in the eyes of the people, and of adding poignancy to his own agony. The vulgarity and shamefulness of it were the last touch of their contempt, and the last stroke of his humiliation. There was a kind of devilish ingenuity in this circumstantial way of branding him as a malefactor. And yet, in the presence of this extremity of human wickedness and cruelty, Jesus found an opportunity of working a wondrous work of God, 
a work which reveals him as the Savior, strong to save, both by his infinite mercy and his infinite confidence in the efficacy of his own sacrifice. Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Eyes and heart for the sorrowful had he, as we see. And now ears and hope nigh at hand for the sinful. No word of resentment, no sense of distance or separation between the spotlessness and perfection of his character and this poor, lonely convict, but a strange and wonderful nearness now and to come. With me, he says, with me in paradise. Ah, this is the secret of much in the life of the Son of God, this intimate, constant, conscious nearness to sinners and to sin. He had sounded the depth of evil, and knowing it, he pitied with an infinite compassion its victims. He got as near as he could to them in their misery, and died to save them from it. That heart nearness to the thief had nothing to do with the nearness of the crosses. Everyone knows what a gulf may be between people who are very near together. Father and son, husband and wife. No, it was the nearness of a heart deliberately trained to seek it. A heart delighting in mercy, and deliberately surrendering all other delights for it hungering and thirsting for the love of the lost and ruined. The heart panteth after the waters, the dying for life that departs, the Lord in his glory for sinners for the love of rebellious hearts. And so he is quite ready at once to share his heaven with this poor defiled creature, the first trophy of the cross. Again, what a lesson of love! How different all this from the common inclination to shrink away from contact and intercourse with the vile! Oh, shame that there can ever have been such a shrinking in our poor guilty hearts! The servant is not above his Lord. He came to sinners. Let us go to them with him. 3. His Words to the Father Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This prayer for his murderers is a revelation of the wonderful nearness and capacity of love. The Savior passes from pole to pole of human kin to find a ground on which he can plead for the forgiveness of those cruel and wicked men, and he finds it in their ignorance of the stupendousness of their sin against him. It seems as though he chooses to remain in ignorance of what they did know, and to dwell only on what they did not. They know not what they do. It was ever so with him. He has no pleasure in inequity. Wrongdoers are so precious to him that he never will magnify or exaggerate their wrong. No, not a hair's breadth. He will not dwell on it. No, not a moment, except to plead some reasonable ground for its pardon, such as this. The ignorance of the wrongdoer, or the rich efficacy of his sacrifice. 
he will only name sin to the Father, in order that he may confess it for the sinner, and intercede for mercy and for grace. This is the old and ever new way of dealing with injuries, especially personal injuries. Is it yours? Are you seeking thus after reasons for making the wrong done to you appear pardonable? Is your first response to an affront or insult or slander, or to some still greater wrong, to pray the Father for those whom you believe to be injuring you, that his gracious gift of forgiveness may come upon them? That is the principle of Calvary. That is the spirit, the mind of Christ. That is the way in which he won the mead and crown, trod all his foes beneath his feet, by being trod down. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Death has always been held to afford a final test of faith, and here the human soul of Jesus passed through that mortal struggle which awaits us all when heart and flesh shall fail. Into thy hands, that is enough. As he passes the threshold of the unknown, goes, as we must, into the valley of the shadow, faith springs forth and exclaims, Into thy hands, all shall be well. In this confidence I have labored. In this confidence I die. In this confidence I shall live before thee. For to himself it is finished. Thus, in his last ever-wonderful words, Jesus pronounces himself, the sentence of his own heart upon his own work. It is completed. Every barrier is broken down. Every battle is fought. Every hellish dart has flown. Every wilderness is passed. Every drop of the cup of anguish has been drunk up and with a note of victorious confidence, he cries out, It is finished! Looking back from the cross on all his life in the light of these words, we see how he regarded it as an opportunity for accomplishing a great duty and for the fulfillment of a mission. Now, he says, the duty is done, the mission is fulfilled, the work is finished. Truly, it is a lofty, a noble, yea, a godlike view of life. Is it ours? Death will come to us. The living know that they shall die. The waters will overflow, and the foundations will be broken up, and every precious thing will grow dim, and our life also will have passed. We shall then have to say of something, It is finished. It will be too late to alter it. There is no man that hath power in the day of death. What then shall it be that is finished? A life of selfish ease, or a life of following the Son of Man? A life of sinful gratification, of careful thought of ourselves, unprofitable from beginning to end, or a life of generous devotion to the things which are immortal in the honor of God and the salvation of men. End of chapter 7
recording by Tom Hirsch.